Welcome to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. I'm Pastor Roland Kennison, and I want to thank you for listening. Rosemont Baptist Mission is passionately bringing people face-to-face with the life-changing power of Jesus Christ. It's our prayer that through this podcast, you'll hear our passion for the gospel and that you will truly experience the transformation that only Jesus can bring. I pray you find the following sermon encouraging and challenging and that it will build you up in the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. And one more thing before we begin. If any of the sermons on our podcast have been helpful to you, would you please let us know? It would be a great help and blessing to us to know that this ministry is being used by God in your life and ministry. Would you tell us where you're located and specifically how this ministry has helped you? We greatly anticipate hearing from you. You can simply email your response to pastor at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, let's begin our time today. We're going to be in Zechariah 7, and we're continuing this study on worship. And what does it mean, and what does it look like to have a God-centered worship in our life? And I pray you got a taste of that in the songs today. Um... But just singing isn't solely worship. It is worship, but there's there's more to that. And that's what we're learning in Zechariah 7 and 8. And so let's read. We've just got three verses today, verses 8, 9, and 10. So let's read those passages together today. It says in Zechariah 7, 8, Then the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice and practice kindness and compassion to each to his brother. And do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor, and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Let's pray over our passage today. God, I thank you for your word And I thank you for the instruction we can gather from that. I pray that your word does not return void, that it's not simply reading a book. It is your word that will come into our life, convict and reprove and and, and uh, teach us and train us in righteousness. And we'll turn to you the fruit of your work in our lives. I pray today that we would be open to what you would want us to know. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Early in um, our marriage, Rhonda and I lived in Colorado Springs. We lived close to her parents. We went to the same church as they did. And so we did a lot of stuff together. I enjoy my in-laws. They are great people. Some of you have met them uh, here. And uh, we we just have a lot of good memories. And uh, one particular memory um, that I have is a time we went to a restaurant called The Hungry Farmer, is what this place was called. I don't think it's in existence anymore, but it was it was a fantastic place to eat. They uh, they bring you these rolls and cornbread, and uh, it, it, that that was wonderful. And because it was a farming kind of uh, 
uh, atmosphere. They brought galvanized buckets of stew or soup to your to your table, and it was fantastic soup or stew, whatever it was. And then uh, um, the, the waiters were donned in overalls because it was a farmer theme, and so they would pour coffee in these really amazing ways. They'd put it behind their back and pour their coffee. I don't know how they do that. They put the the cup on the toe and they would pour. I mean, they they would do all this magnificent stuff. It was fun to be there. And we would fill up on the bread and the stew and the salad. And then they'd bring us our meal, right? And it was a fantastic... They didn't stop us from eating the meal. And we, we, we ate. It was, it was a fantastic. And this particular time, we had a... Just a it was just a really good memory. Um, and I would say, if someone asked me, that's the best meal I've ever had. I mean, everything came together. It was great company. It was great food. It was just the best meal I've ever had, I think. And so the question that you're like, why is he talking about food? Um, well, I, I like food, but the other reason is because I want us to think about what makes a good meal. What makes a good meal? The French have a proverb that says a good meal starts with hunger, right? It is hard to enjoy a meal if you are not hungry. If you are, if you're full and someone sits down this feast before you, you're not going to enjoy that as much as if you're hungry and you're going to enjoy that meal much better. And my point to all this is to say this. It's the same with worship. Effective worship begins with a hunger for God. Real worship happens not to fulfill our religious obligation on Sunday morning where we can check off our list. Real worship happens when we say, I hunger for the living presence of God in my life. That's what the theme of our passage is today. The last section we talked about, God warned the people of God of empty ritual, of just worshiping in order to worship, to remember they were they were fasting over events that God did not tell them to fast. And then they went to the priest and said, can we stop fasting because I don't like fasting? And God said, this empty ritual isn't what I what I desire. And so God warned them and he warned them. In fact, in verse seven, you can look at that if you have your Bible. It says that he he warned their forefathers of this very thing, of having empty worship. And he says, I've warned your forefathers about this, and now you're in danger of experiencing the same thing. They were endangering themselves of trading one form of idolatry for another. No, they didn't have their bales and Asherah poles anymore. Instead, the focus of their worship was themselves. But that's idolatry. And they're just, they may not be bowing down to those idols, but it's idolatry nonetheless. So in our passage today, God tells people, His people here, that if they want to experience God's living presence, it requires a deep hunger for transformation in our lives. To be transformed into the people that God wants us to be. And He does through, does that through four Four commands that we're going to look at. So let's see what this means for us today. And when we think about worship, 
real worship, God-centered worship, when we set aside ourself and our preferences and we start focusing only on the Lord in our worship, what, what, that, what transformation happens in our lives? What should we expect? Well, first, Zechariah tells us that God-centered worship means that we would dispense true justice. Dispense true justice. Look in the first part of verse 9. It simply says, Thus has the Lord of hosts said, Dispense true justice. My outline's not real creative today. It's the passage from, from which we're reading. So, um, dispense true justice. Our God is a God of justice. When we find that when we read the Scripture, and if we read through mostly like the Old Testament for sure, but even in the New Testament, we find that He is described by Himself and by others as a God who desires justice in His people. And if our God is concerned with justice, then those who worship Him should be concerned with justice. Now, I preached a sermon on February 28th, 2021 that was that and this was the 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 title of the sermon is social justice the same as biblical justice and here's the sermon boiled down to a word no okay don't you wish my sermons were that short is social justice biblical justice no it is not in fact we we can read in in proverbs 28 5 it says this evil men do not understand justice. That's what we see in our world today. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand all things. So there's a lot of talk about social justice today. And, and I, I submit to you what the scripture calls justice and what the culture calls social justice is not the same. And, and, it, and social justice bears no resemblance to what biblical justice is about. And I'm not going to re-preach that sermon again here. Like, I'm not going to preach a sermon inside of a sermon. But if you want to, if you want to find out about that, you can go to our podcast or our, our or our website and look up February 28th, 2021 and, and watch or listen to that again. But in that sermon, I define biblical justice this way. The proper and godly behavior that should occur in all areas of life based upon Scripture. Proper and godly behavior in every area of our life based upon what the Word of God says. And specifically... When the scripture talks about this, it speaks about how we treat widows, orphans, the poor, the oppressed, the foreigner, people who are the most vulnerable. We'll talk about that in a minute. So in the broader sense, our passage is really talking about the proper ordering of society. And we know that Jesus is the only one who can and he will bring a proper ordering of society. That, that we will not experience peace on this world until Jesus come back and rules. Okay? So we, we know that, but as Jesus' servants, we should strive to bring about a proper ordering of all society and we use whatever means we, we can in that. So imagine if you're a widow in, in Zechariah's day. 
okay? Or maybe you're a, a poor farmer who, who can't, you know, through a string of catastrophes, drought and crop failure and fires or whatever, you, you don't, you cannot make a living because your crops are not growing. In other words, imagine you're someone who's unable to care for yourself. You're a, you're a young orphan whose parents have passed and you, you're too little to go to work. And, and picture you in this situation, somebody commits a violent act against you. Whether it's physical violence, whether it's, it's predatory nature and finances or, or some sort of, of violent act that was brought against a person. So you go to the leaders, the Jewish leaders, and you ask them for justice in this situation. I can't care for myself, yet these people come and have done this to me. If these leaders dispense true justice like he is talking about in our passage, they'd look at the evidence without any bias. They would not look at this poor person and receive the bribe of the rich person who's trying to oppress them and say, I'm going to vote for the rich person. Nor would they look at the poor person and say, well, the poor person is poor, so I'm just going to vote in their favor just because they're poor. See, a, a, just, a, a just judge is not going to look at the particular circumstance uh, or, or the standing, I should say, of the person. They are going to look at the circumstance. They're going to look at what God's word has to say, and they're going to judge without any bias. Social justice in our culture says, look at the person and treat them differently by how they look. That's social justice. If they're poor, if they have a different skin color, if they're from a different station, you treat them one way. But if they are this skin color or this standing in life or this economic status, treat them differently. And God says, that's not justice. We look at people as bearers of God's image, which means we all are equal in that standing. We are all image bearers. So if these leaders, if they wanted to judge like the judge of the earth, right? They want to judge like God would judge. They would they would attempt to come to a decision that was not influenced by any subjective or partial considerations. They wouldn't judge by who you were or who you were not. They would look at the situation, they'd look at the Word of God, and they'd dispense true justice. And the word true here has the idea of, of a judgment that's consistent with the facts. And, and the whole phrase, dispense true justice, it could be literally rendered, judge judgments of truth. It's a call to make judgments based on facts and not dishonest motives. And for us today, here's what this means. We look at people and see them how God sees them. Again, they're image bearers. Every person you meet, every single day, no matter what they look like, how poor they are, how rich they are, what color their skin is, it doesn't matter. They are the bearer 
of God's image, which means they have inherent value. And they all need Jesus. We do, they do, it's all about that. We don't treat the rich better because um, they're rich. We don't treat them better than we would the poor. We don't treat people with skin color differently. It would mean that we, we treat everyone we come across with dignity and the respect that an image, the, the person who bears the image of God deserves. It doesn't mean they're all saved. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree with them. It means God loved them so much He gave His Son for them. Real worship. How is this, how is this all connected? Because when we focus our thoughts on God, real worship will transform us. And God says, it's not sacrifices He desires. It's not songs that He wants. It says here, He wants people who want to dispense true justice. That's what He wants from us. The real worship of God means did we dispense real justice. If we're engaged in real worship, in God-centered worship, we'll dispense true justice. But what also means... That we practice kindness and compassion. We continue in verse 9, the last part of verse 9. He says, and practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. Practice kindness and compassion. So when justice becomes a joy, when, when we begin to see people as image bearers, people who, who God gave his son for, all of them, then Kindness and compassion will, will flow out of us. And I want to talk about those words for a minute because the word kindness here is the Hebrew word chesed. It's H-E-S-E-D, but that H is that sound that the Jewish people say. And, and you know, a lot of us know New Testament words and we know the word agape. And that's the, like God's uh, unconditional love. Well, chesed is like that. And it's a word we should be familiar with in the Old Testament. It is, it is God's enduring, faithful, unfailing, loyal, love, mercy, and, and grace. It is a word that has so rich of meaning, translators find it difficult to translate this word. It's translated kindness and loyalty and loving kindness. They tried to grab all this word together and they put loving and kindness into one word. They made up a word just to translate it. Loving kindness. Um, it's been translated a lot of different things because it's so rich in meaning. We could possibly translate it as this. Every time we saw the word, we could say God's loyal, enduring, steadfast, kindness, mercy, and love. But that's a little long, right, for a word. But that's what it means. It's the idea that God's love is unconditional. And no matter what, it is going to be loyal to us. It will endure. It will, we, it will always be there. And when, when we receive Christ, we have God's faithful, enduring love 
filling us and it should fill us to the capacity that it spills out onto other people. And that's what he's saying here. When we have real worship that's centered on God's on God, God's said flows through us to other people. We know our worship is meaningful when we begin to see God's faithful, unfailing, enduring love passing through us and spilling on to those who need to experience God's unconditional love. Our community is full of people who are searching for love in any kind of way they can find it. And what they are searching for, what their soul is really searching for, is God's chesed. And we know it, and it should spill out of us onto other people. He's saying we should practice kindness, and that word kindness, loving kindness, all that, it's paired with this word compassion. And that word compassion is a word that's related to the word womb, which kind of points to this loving, tender, maternal love. We could talk talk about tender compassion and loyal love. And these two things should should dictate every relationship we have with strangers, with our family, with friends, with neighbors, with co-workers. Faithful love and tender compassion, God says, is to reign over every relationship they had with the family of God. It's the principle, that principle of, of God's loyal love and God's tender compassion it causes Paul to write this in Philippians 2, 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. When the faithful, enduring love of God and the tender compassion of God indwells us, it will compel us to courageously and sacrificially minister to other people. God-centered worship means our hearts should be stirred with the love and compassion that Christ has for people. We see our Savior minister that way. We should serve that way. If we looked in Matthew, 8, or Matthew 9, we see Christ doing a lot of different things. We see Him first... Um, help, he, he helps those who need help. He, he healed a woman who was bleeding for 12 years. She was unclean. She, could not, she couldn't worship God because she was unclean because she bled for 12 years. That was her real problem. It's not that she was going to die. It's that she could never be clean to worship. And with the touch of Jesus' garment, she's healed. We see him raise an official's daughter from the dead. We see him heal two blind men. We see him cast out a demon from a a mute man who was possessed by this demon and set him free from this terrible life. But he did all these things, but he did them, but he did not do them dispassionately. 
He didn't just come and do it because he had to. Look what it says in Matthew 9.36. Seeing the people, he felt, and look at the word, he felt compassion for them. Because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. Each and every day, time grows shorter and shorter. We could read the Bible in one hand and read the newspaper in another hand. And it doesn't take a scholar to know time short, right? Jesus is coming. And there's going to be a time where it is too late for our community to come to know Christ. And when that happens, they'll be condemned to eternity in hell. And our, our, the, the, the loyal love and tender compassion that fills us because of Christ's sacrifice for us and our accepting Him, that should fill us up and it should spill over to other people And that shows up by us sharing the good news of Jesus with them. See, in our responsibility to share the good news, it's not going to be a guilt trip that drives us to reach our community to Christ. And it's not going to be our legal obligation that we can check off the box that will cause us, that will drive us to go and share the good news with those who need to do that. It's the loyal love and tender compassion that Jesus gives us that's going to drive us into our community. And you know what? Empty worship does not produce that. A worship that's centered on me, a a worship that's centered on my preferences, does not produce in me the tender love, the tender compassion and loyal love of God in my heart. It's that idolatry, it's the empty worship that God is condemning the people in Zechariah's day about. And he says, you need to be transformed. Transformed to dispense true justice and to practice kindness and compassion each to his brother. God-centered worship looks like dispensing justice. It looks like practicing kindness and compassion. Zechariah shows us also here, That God-centered worship means that we do not oppress the vulnerable. Look in verse 10, the first part of verse 10. It says, and do not oppress the widow or the orphan, the stranger or the poor. So the first two aspects we talked about, dispensing justice and kindness and compassion, that's how we live out love. The last two are really how to live Unlove, you know, not, not, not how to live out hate. How to, what does it look like when we don't love these people? He says, if, if we're oppressing them, and later he says, if we're planning evil, that is, that is hate. But instead, we should not oppress and we should not plan. We are not to oppress those who are the weakest, those who are alone. Those who are unable to help themselves. And Zechariah mentions four groups here that we must not oppress. Instead, we should help the widow, the orphan, the stranger, and the poor. And each of those are peoples in in Zechariah's time who could not do anything for themselves. They could not 
support themselves so they were the most vulnerable in their society. If a widow was cheated at the market, who would come and fight for her the the right um, that she the, the right price? Her husband couldn't; he had passed. If if there was a child whose parents had passed away, too small to work, how could they get food to survive? If there was a stranger. In different translations, it would say foreigner. If there was a foreigner who came to the land, didn't know the customs, didn't know the language, didn't know how to find a job or a home or or food, then they would become easy targets for the for those who were unscrupulous. Or the poor. See, the poor were looked on by the Jewish community as those who were cursed by God. God must not like them. That's why they're poor. So I'm sure not going to help them. And so they were left on their own. These groups were easy targets for those who who wanted to make money off them, wanted to use them, saw them as objects. And God had told His people over and over again, they were to make sure that those who were most vulnerable in their society should be protected. The word, the word oppress here, it's a word that means to press upon, or to violate, or to exploit, to do violence. And specifically, it has the wrong, it has the idea of wrongdoing of someone of a higher station committing violence or pressing down on, on someone from a lower station. True worship of God is to not oppress these people. In fact, in the New Testament, Jesus' brother James said, this is what religion's all about. Look what it says in James 1.27. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's what the worship of God looks like. It's not coming to a building on Sunday, checking off the box that I was at church and going home and living for me the rest of the week. True and undefiled religion in the sight of God and our Father is to visit widows and orphans and to care for those who are the most vulnerable. All this is really tied to justice and compassion. It is. We can read Jeremiah 22.3. Listen to the connection here. Thus says the Lord in Jeremiah 22.3, Do justice and righteousness and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. That is, deliver the one who's been robbed, deliver him from his oppressor. And do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. So when you think about the most vulnerable in our society, who do you think about? Who are the most vulnerable in our community right now? What does it mean to not oppress them, but instead help them? Maybe it simply begins with identification and saying, who is the most vulnerable? Who are those in our community who do not have the ability to care for themselves in one way or another? 
There are those who have the ability and don't care for themselves. I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about those who do not have the ability. How can you help provide for those ladies whose husbands have passed away and didn't provide for them in death? How can we as a body, how can you individually minister to those type of people? How about those who are undereducated? We hear on the news all the time that our education system is failing us. I've got news for you. The education system has been failing us for a long time. I've met people in our community, young adults in our community, who cannot read. They can't read. Which means they cannot find a job with any kind of upward mobility. Which means they become slaves to the state. Dispensing justice is freeing them from their oppressor. And saying, you know what freedom is? Working, working, and, and working for yourself and not being a slave to the state. I'm not being political. I'm simply talking about spiritual truth. How can we help those type of people who can't read or who are undereducated? Maybe we could help them with helping them find a, a skill or a trade that they can learn so that they can, they can find the pride and the, the value that working gives a person. Can we help them learn to read or write? How about the people who come here from another country? What about the stranger or the foreigner? Note here, I'm going to get people mad at me now, note here that there isn't, that this command is not dictated whether they're here legally or not. Look, the, the, the politicians have opened the borders. And the border is a political issue to be solved elsewhere. We are about the souls of people. And those people are in our community right now. So what our job is, what is our job? It's to, it's to figure out how they can hear the good news of Jesus. How they cannot be oppressed by people. I don't know what that looks like. We live in times that we've never lived in before. It's not like I, we can go back and look 20 years ago and say, well, they did it this way then, so we can do it that way now. Because we don't live that way. But we have a command that says true worship is to not oppress the widow, the orphan, the stranger, or the poor. What about the most vulnerable and most endangered species in America, the unborn child? How do we help not have those oppressed? Those people. How will we fight to keep unborn babies from being oppressed and killed? How can we care for mothers before the pregnancy so that they can choose life? But then how do we minister to them after the pregnancy? Because now they've got... A child who is an eternal being with them for the rest of their lives. How do we minister to that? Because you know what? A lot of these are single moms and they don't have dads. And while I'm not negating the mom's influence, that's a lot like being an orphan. Not having a dad. We have a lot of single parent families. And it's not God's plan to have single parent families listen I'm I don't know the answer to all these I'm hoping some of you say 
Well, that's what God's laying on my heart. And this is what I'd like to do in that way. I'm simply saying we should wrestle with this because this is part of worship. The worship God desires is a worship that produces a heart that says, I will not let these people be oppressed on my time. You know, I mean, I am here. God placed me at this time in this community. So not on my watch. That's the call God is giving the people of God here. God-centered worship is dispensing true justice, practicing kindness and compassion. We don't depress, uh, don't oppress those who are the most vulnerable. And he also says in the last part of verse 10, we do not devise evil against one another. We do not devise evil against one another. Last part of verse 10. Do and do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. Like I said, my outlines are not all that original. It's just what it says. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. We're not to oppress and we're not to think about ways to do evil to one another. That means worship means letting go of grudges. It means that if we refuse to plot and plan ways of getting back to hurt others who have hurt us. You know, to oppress the, the, what he said at the first part of verse 10, that is an outward action. That is something that someone does outside of their body. They are oppressing someone else. But this devising of evil is something that happens inside our mind, right? The word devise, it's a, it's a mental process. It gives the idea of plotting and inventing and, and, and to compute and to think. To devise evil means we're, it's someone who is plotting and inventing new ways to do evil to somebody. Now, I know no one here sits and plots evil against others. Like, I know no one here has ever thought about, if I had rocket launchers on my car, then I could really take care of that idiot driver in front of me, right? No one's ever thought about that, I'm sure. Like, how could I mount guns to my car? To Right? No one's ever done that. No one's has ever sought and th- sat and thought about how somebody has said something to me, and they've hurt us, and so I'm figuring out how I'm going to respond the next time I see them so my comeback will have the maximum impact. Next time I see them, I'm going to say this to them. So maybe maybe no one but me has thought about these things. Maybe I've said too much about the rocket launchers, but anyway. I don't mean to to minimize sin. I'm just saying... Maybe no one has ever sat and thought about, I'm going to get back at someone who'd injured me. But here's the problem with that kind of thought. See, the battle for the Christian life is, starts in the mind. It's these thoughts that come in. That's why we're told in, in, in Romans 12:1, renew your mind. Because in our mind, thoughts begin, and thoughts very easily turn into actions. And those actions, when we do them over and over, very quickly become habits. And habits over the lifetime, I mean, they become, they become a lifestyle. And our lifestyle ends up being our legacy. And so the battle is for the mind. Throughout Scripture, 
God brings harsh judgment on those who plot evil and then decide to act on that plan. Listen how Micah the prophet warned people about this. And listen how these verses go from internal plotting to external action. Look in Micah 2 verse 1. Woe to those who scheme iniquity. Woe uh, who, who work out evil on their beds. They're laying there at night and they're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to think. I'm going to. It says when morning comes, they do it. For it is in the power of their hands. So they covet the fields, internal thoughts, and then seize them, external action, right? They covet fields, they seize them, and they they covet houses, and they take them away. They rob a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am planning. God says, you're not the only one who sits and thinks about what can be done I'm sitting and thinking, God says, about what I'm going to do. And he says, I am thinking against this family, a calamity from which you cannot remove your necks. And you will not walk haughtily, for it will be an evil time. When we are engaged in God-centered worship, when our thoughts of our preferences are pushed aside, we focus on the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, then these evil thoughts of of what we can do to get back at people, they'll just wash away from us. Because we'll begin to have the heart of God. We'll begin to know that God is our avenger. And if there's any getting back to be done, God is going to do it. But probably more more than anything else, then God rain down vengeance upon this guy. Instead of that, what probably should happen more than that is us simply going to our brother and sister and making amends and setting things right within the body of Christ. Jesus tells us, in fact, that if we are have that kind of strained relationship with somebody before. We go to worship. If we're in the middle of worship, we should stop our worship and go fix that relationship. Look what it says in Matthew 5, 22, or 23 and 24. It says, Therefore, if you're presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. So does that describe a relationship in your life? Leaving your offering, so to speak, and going being reconciled, because that's what God-centered worship looks like. See, any fasting, any worshiping, any sacrifice, without giving attention to these important aspects of life, these four commands God has given, Any worship that's not given attention to that is empty rituals, what God says. The history of the people of God bears testimony to this. Zechariah is telling them they must change their way of thinking about that. We call that repentance. Change your way of thinking. It means we're going this way and we're going to turn and we're going to think about it this way. And they begin to practice this from a heart that's been transformed by God. 
Otherwise, their worship, their fasting, their feasting, whatever they were doing, that's what he said in the first seven verses of Zechariah 7, all that would just be empty. Over and over again, we hear God himself telling us that empty ritual without a heart for God and a heart for people will not accomplish anything spiritually. Look, look at this passage. I just got a couple of passages. I'll be done. Amos 5, 21 through 24. This is God speaking. And listen to the passion in his voice. I hate, God says, I, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me, offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says, I want your hearts toward people, toward God and toward people. In Isaiah's day, the people of God were fasting and they were praying in an attempt to keep the enemy from coming in um, and, and taking over and conquering them. And they were praying and fasting and it seemed like God was just not listening. And God told them it was because their hearts were not focused on Him or on others. Look in Isaiah 58, 6-9. It says this, This is not... Is this not the fast which I choose? It wasn't their fasting that they were doing. It, this is the fast, he says. To loosen the bonds of wickedness. To undo the bands of the yoke. And to let the oppressed go free and break every yoke. Is it not to divide? This is the fast, he says. Is this not the fast? Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? And bring the homeless poor into the house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. He says, these are the things. It's, it's letting the love of God transform us and spill out to other people. And he says, then your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and He will say, Here I am. If you remove the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. God responds to a lifestyle of worship that springs out of a transformed life. It's not us mustering this in our lives. It's letting Christ transform us so that we see people the way God does And his loyal love and tender compassion spill out upon them. And we minister the way that he wants us to. The point of what God's saying in Zechariah 7 is is that. God doesn't accept worship if it's simply empty ritual. He doesn't accept worship without the accompanying transformation that Jesus brings in our life. And that transformation will invariably provide and produce in our life care for people, especially for those who need it most. I'm going to have you bow your heads and think through that.
God, we come to you and ask that you'd speak to our hearts. First, we know that we could not meet any sense of righteousness without Christ in us. It would be Christ working his righteousness in us. But God, for those who might have said, I'm going to live my own life. I want God in my life, but I'm going to still do things my way. I'm not going to treat those people the way Christ would. I'm not going to think about them in a kind way. I'm not going to share the gospel with them. They look too different. They sound different. They, they're, they're whatever. God, I pray that you would bring conviction on our hearts for that. I pray that we would be known as people who truly worship you. God, as we sang this morning, it was so good to hear the hearts of God's people focused on you. And God, I pray that as we finish today, that we would understand that it's not that part of worship that you desire. It is a life transformed for you that shows up in the care for people, that we are your ambassadors, that we are your, your missionaries in the field. Your, we are your representatives. So we should treat people how you treat people. We should love them how you love them. And like Jesus seeing the people, our hearts should break over those who are distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd who desperately need Jesus and we know how he, they can access, access Him and we keep quiet. God, forgive us of that. Like it says in Corinthians, help us be those who you plead through you beg, that, that we're begging on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today. If there's any decision that needs to be made, I pray that we would be bold and courageous enough to make it. That we would change our lives to align with your heart and your will. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Staying Connected podcast, the preaching ministry of Pastor Roland Kennison from Rosemont Baptist Church in Montrose, Colorado. We pray the Lord will use this sermon to help you in your life and ministry. If you found this podcast helpful, would you consider contributing to our ministry? You can give online at www.rosemontbaptist.org forward slash give. If you live in western Colorado or you're visiting the area, we would love to have you visit us on Sunday morning. Our services start at 1045 a.m. You can also watch our worship service live through our website at rosemontbaptist.org. Now, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen.